0: Hi, you're listening to the Inside Family Law podcast with your interviewer, Zoe Durand. And i um, very lucky to have um, uh, procured a <laughs> former family court judge. Um, the Honourable Mark Leport-Trench is, is here today. Thank you, Mark, for joining us. Pleasure. Um, look, the first question I have to ask, I admit it's not family law related, but I'm just very curious. Your name, Leport-Trench. Yes. Est-ce que vous êtes français?
1: Uh, well, it was initially with, with the Huguenots. Oh. where um, they left France as a result of persecution and um, my lot went to Ireland and that's where we came from.
0: Mm. Do you speak French or...?
1: No, only enough to order things in cafes in High school in French, Paris. high school French, yeah. Yes, that sort of stuff.
0: <laughs> All right, well, we'll move, we'll move back to the law then. I was hoping to have this digression into your French heritage, but I think that, that, that's probably a few hundred years late. It is. <laughs> so... Look, um, maybe just if you could t- tell our listeners a little bit, I mean, look, I think you probably don't really need introduction, but for those perhaps, because um, I know sometimes just um, mums and dads listening into this and people right. that aren't lawyers listening into this, um, what's your background and your short form and version of your path in family law?
1: Uh, right, so um, I was at the bar for 20 years and uh, then appointed as a um, justice in the Family Court of Australia. And I served there for seventeen years, retiring last year when I reached the age of seventy. Um, at that time, the all federal court appointments uh, expire on the uh, uh, the attaining the age of seventy. So that was the end of my career in the in the family court.
0: But you're busy doing things now, so what are you up
1: to now? Oh yes, I'm not retiring, so Mm. now I've been appointed as an acting district court judge for New South Wales Mm. and principal member of the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, and I've been sitting in the occupational division hearing cases involving the uh, Health health uh, Care Complaints Commission against... Uh, medical practitioners.
0: That is interesting. That would yes. be interesting work. In you know.
1: and I've also I'm also an accredited mediator and arbitrator, and um, I'm doing some mediation work. So I haven't done any arbitrations yet, but I'm looking forward to doing that sort of work.
0: Mm, I'm sure you will. I think that that's, there's more and more push towards arbitration, so you will get some arbitration work. I'm sure yes. soon. Yes. Um, so look, I just. One thing I have to say: you judges never retire. Every judge I speak to, former judge, they always say. Even the ones that say they're going to retire, they end up doing, getting busy doing a million things. (laughs) Yes, well,
1: it's a pity. Unfortunately, in the federal system, as I said, there's no capacity for judges to um, even be acting judges post seventy because Mm. the uh, constitution doesn't permit it. Um, But really, I think you know, um, judges who have lot of experience have got a lot to give and um, it's a pity that that's not available but it is in the state system of course and uh, many judges who um, reach a retiring age or decide to retire um, then continue to uh, do work as acting judges in both the um, Supreme Court and the District Court.
0: Is that something perhaps, look, I know this is a little bit out of what we said we'd talk about today, but do you think that they could be scoped to change that though? As you said, like it's a bit of a waste. Of...
1: The problem mm. is you have to change the constitution no. well, and yes. that <laughs> requires a referendum and um, referendums are traditionally difficult to uh, to get past, but it would need the support of all parties really um, and to have a referendum coinciding with an election. Yeah.
0: Mm. Okay. Well... I think the, the things that I really wanted to talk with you about is I heard you speak um, recently um, and, and you were talking about children and I found this interesting how children have changed over the years, um, you know, a 12 year old today versus a 12 year old 30 years ago. What are your thoughts on that and, and where are you at in family law with that?
1: Well really I was speaking about um, taking, the, uh, taking into account the wishes of children mm. in parenting cases. Mm and the importance that the the voice of the child Mm. really has in a family court parenting decision. And uh, I think there's an evolving acceptance in the judiciary of um, uh, the maturity of children being far greater than they were 10, 20 years ago. and so I think um, that my concern is that um, on some occasions the the weight which might be given to the wishes of a child in determining a parenting matter is not as great as um, I would like to see it given.
0: And why is that? do you think do you think that's because it's not always understood that children are in your view dip, well, are different perhaps? Now, as to what they were then, or what do you well, know? I think
1: you know when you're reflecting on, and you know, how does a child think? Um, what is the capacity of a child to really determine important matters? Um, can they um, see the future result of any decision mm. that they make or any view that they express? Uh, when you look at all those, and you reflect back on your own childhood, and you reflect back. On the uh, circumstances of your own children Mm. um, you get a view so it's a subjective view of what the maturity of the child would enable uh, them to appreciate Mm. uh, in terms of the types of wishes that they might um, voice but um, I've been lucky I suppose to have had um, considerable contact with Uh, younger children uh, particularly over the last uh, 10 years and um, really I've been surprised by the level of maturity that I see in those children um, far beyond my childhood and and I think beyond the the childhood of my own children who are now um, in their 40s Mm. so I think that the, the court, as it has younger judges appointed um, in both the Federal Circuit Court and the Family Court of Australia, they will come to the court with um, a different appreciation of uh, the maturity of children and what these children can actually um, appreciate and mm. uh, their their uh, the reliability of their decision-making, I suppose. Um, and so I think more and more the wishes of the child will be, um, the, the, be taken into account at a different level, uh, mm. be given greater weight than perhaps we're seeing at the moment. And th- this is not just something that's happening in Australia, it's happening worldwide in, in terms of uh, parenting cases, because the law is very similar across the world um, in terms of uh, how parenting cases are determined. And even now in relation to the Hague Convention cases dealing with um, the Convention involving um, the civil aspects of international child abduction, Mm. um, the British courts, the United Kingdom courts, are now taking into account the the views of a child in determining uh, whether issues such as habitual residence... Mm. That's something that has not happened... Um, uh, for, well, for the years that the, uh, the Convention's been operating um, up, and it's only a recent thing that's emerged. So I, I think that it will happen, and uh, I think it's a good thing.
0: Hmm. Mm. Um, I mean, it's interesting what you say when you were saying that, it, you know, in a way, sort of people think the law is objective, and, you know, and it should be in many yes. ways, but the reality is people do draw on their own experiences, you know, their own life experiences to sort of under, understand something. You know how yes. you were saying, like they're thinking back to their own childhood or yes. even subconsciously that's where you're kind of assimilating your understanding of yes. knowledge, you know, and your, yes. your judgement about something. Yes. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yes. Well, even, you know, in determining the weight to be given to children's wishes, you're frequently in the court as a judge assisted by uh, a report from a report from an expert but even in those circumstances, um, being able to really understand um, the, uh, the level of weight that the expert is um, advocating for involves some subjective mm. analysis. Mm. And um, that, that will um, impact, I think, on a judge's interpretation of that evidence from an expert.
0: Now, getting a little bit more. Look, I know you know neither of us are sociologists, or or maybe we studied at university. But what are the reasons you think for children being different now to thirty years ago? Is it the internet? Is it the global world? Is it just parenting's changed? We're more permissive in parenting. I don't know.
1: Well, I think it's a combination of many things. Um, uh, Exposure to media in all the forms, um, television, radio. newsprint, um, children are far more exposed to that, um, the, they have social media, um, they have their peer groups, um, I mean really appreciating what children are exposed to at school, um, through teaching, through uh, connection with peers is something that most parents really have limited insight into. Um, and uh, we
0: don't really know what's going on in their world (laughs) well exactly I mean
1: and time and time again I heard cases where um, the parent one parent would say well my child could not have known that fact um, other than experiencing it so you know in particular cases of abuse um, that view was very common but uh, I think unless you're with your child you know 24 hours a day through their particularly their uh, experiences at school and other places outside of your control you really do not know exactly what your child has been exposed to in terms of development of knowledge and, and um, i suppose other aspects of life
0: i mean one thing i would say you know from when i was working as an independent children's or at legal aid is I was really shocked by how precocious children are these days yes. like compared to what I like comparing I guess what yes. I was like their age like I would yes. see 10 year olds and they come in and they'd be they'd be telling me they've started some on on business on selling computer games I think they're yes. making it up and they'd yes. log on they'd show me look this is my online business that they've yes. started at age 10 they've got 500 followers it was it blew my mind to be honest yes
1: <laughs> yes well exactly but that that same thing is happening to you that happens for uh, judges, I suppose that mm-hmm. you you had no concept that children of the age of ten um, could do that or would do that
0: or would think to do that. Yeah. Yes,
1: exactly. So that when it's when somebody suggests this is what the child's doing, you naturally have an inclination of disbelief until yeah. You I thought this then. child was
0: making it up. He's going, mm-hmm. I started this online business and I'm doing this and I'm pre-selling games. Or I do not even know what it was, computer games. Yes. And I, I just thought, oh, this is, you know, it's just having a... Thing. But, the,
1: you know, <laughs> other aspects, such as, you know, um, the, the constitution of the family these days is quite different to, it, which, to what it was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Um, in a lot of families, I don't know what proportion it might yep. be, but it seems to be a lot just of families... anecdotally
0: speaking from... Yeah.
1: Both parents have to work. Sure. So there have to be other childcare mm-hmm. facilities put in place for children. Um... Children go on holidays with their parents and it's not just to the beach, it's overseas, it's, you know, the children are far more worldly, they're travelling, they're experiencing different cultures, so their level of maturity and knowledge and so forth, I think is significantly greater than it was 20 years ago
0: even. Mm. No, I agree, like comparing Mm. the children that I met when I was independent children's lawyer to what I was like at their age. Noticeably different, yes. you know. Yes. <laughs> I was yes. like, you know, I was. I remember thinking, like, where have these children come from? But they come, They've come from the new generation. That's where yes. they come from. So,
1: as, with all those things in mind, I mean, it is a generality. I know. Yeah, we're you've generalizing. Got to be, you've got to look at each particular case, but with all those things in mind, I think that you know what children have to say needs to be considered far more seriously in a court context than it has been in bygone days.
0: Mm. Mm. But, I mean, I do think children's wishes are given weight, but do you think they should be given more weight? Is that what your, your thoughts are?
1: Well, it, you know, every judge will have a different, um, sure. different view about that. Um, and, for, for example, you know, you might say, if you look at all the cases, and I can remember saying this in court to uh, litigants, uh, you're asking me to make an order contrary to the wishes of a 14-year-old. If you can find me a reported case where a judge of this court has done that, I'd like to see it. So you get these positions where, you know, there seems to be lines in the sand. You know, if a child is 14, Mm. what they have to say is, Very important Mm. Um, and the court as a judge you would be really disinclined to make an order contrary to the wishes of that child unless there was some extraordinary reason Mm. now what I'm saying is perhaps that line is going to go backwards and it might be now a Mm. 12 year old you Mm. you know you're not going to make an order contrary to the wishes of a 12 year old Mm. or a 10 year old so that, I guess, is the progression that you can see in cases. And, and you think it is
0: changing, though? Like, even though we're a yes. bit behind maybe in the actual courts, do you think the court is slowly moving that line, as you say, younger and younger?
1: Um, mm-hmm. I think so, yes. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. Mm. Um, look, I guess we're doing a bit of a 360 to talk about something else, unless there's anything else you want to add to that. Mm. I was also interested, because I think it is an ongoing, and, and you, you might have a contrary view, to, a lot of lawyers perceive it as an ongoing I put it in inverted commas, self-represented litigants. Right. Yeah, but you might say it differently.
1: Well, <laughs> look, I've got to say in all my experiences in the court in dealing with self-represented litigants, I didn't ever have a bad experience. experience. Um, people represent themselves for all sorts of reasons. Um, these days it's very much uh, financial but there are other reasons that people represent themselves and um, it's not uncommon to find a person representing him or herself who presents as a difficult personality but I always found they responded well to respect um, and you know getting the ground rules clear to start with um, and uh, having them understand that uh, if there's something happening in the process that they don't understand, please ask me and I'll explain. Um, Those sorts of things um, gave self-represented litigants a great deal of confidence, I think, in running their cases. The downside of all that is that that led in a lot of cases to self-represented litigants believing that um, they were going to be successful. and
0: Because of what their rapport with you? Like, because of the them. rapport,
1: you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you get to the end, you deliver a judgment and they're just completely flawed. You know, they just can't imagine that how that could have happened. So that although the the process must be seen as fair and is fair i i think there's an aspect of almost cruelty to it because you can't you can't really deal with those persons by trying to persuade them initially that they're not going to be successful because that's going to get you nowhere other than in conflict with them these are cases that really have to be heard they've got to a point of being before a judge for hearing, and if you've got to that point, you've, the judge knows that everything that can have that, that can be done to try and resolve it has been done. So you just have to hear the case and hear it in a matter that provides the the least friction between the parties um, to uh, try and reduce the emotional element in the case to one of. Simply a business type transaction, um, and you hear the case and you decide it, and in a lot of cases the self represented litigant is very disappointed, um, and I saw that time and time again, and, I, and I, I was very sad about that. I just thought it was but i couldn't Seems see, cool, doesn't it? well i couldn 't <laughs> think of any other way to do it. Um, that was going to be productive, you know, and, and get the case concluded and have the parties out of the court.
0: Mm. It's interesting what you say that you haven't had, you know, I, mean, I believe you, if you say you haven't had a negative experience, well, not a terribly negative one no. in all your time, because, you know, lawyers are always like, oh, I've got this matter and there's a self represented litigant and they're difficult and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. I mean, what would yeah. your tips be, I guess, for lawyers who are managing, working opposite of someone who is self-represented to to Have your experience, which is quite possible. well.
1: It's my my experience was it different. It's quite yeah. different.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I think it's very difficult for lawyers because um, immediately you're sort of placed in a combative type environment. Um, you're appear- appearing for one party, and they're your client. Um, and you've got to be very careful about the way in which you deal with the other party for a variety of reasons. First of all, you've got to retain the confidence of your own client Um, and if that client thinks you're being too friendly with or um, that you're giving too much ground to the other party, Mm. you may well lose the confidence of your client and the client then. Um, So I I think the, the... Only answer and advice I could give is to try and deal with um, these parties in a business like manner.
0: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: Don't be combative. Um, uh, Do what is necessary to do the business of the case. Um, And you know, time and time and again, the other thing that comes out of Uh, my experience with these sorts of cases where one party is self-represented and one party is not, the allegations made by the self-represented litigant that there's some sort of relationship going on which is beyond client and lawyer um, between the other party and the lawyer um, is made. And that seems to arise out of a defensive and combative type of presentation from the lawyer representing the party, mm.
0: um, which they then perceive as you're too aligned. Why well, you're so yes, aligned too aligned. That. Yes, yeah. they,
1: they they see it as not just a business arrangement. That mm. because the lawyer is so stridently defending the other party or, or pursuing their case, the self-represented litigant appears to have the view that. Mm. There must be something more going on, you know, mm-hmm. and particularly where there's a difference in in the uh, gender of the client and the solicitor.
0: Mm. Yeah. Um, and what about for someone who, because I know sometimes self-represented people do listen into this, um, what what are your tips to them when they're presenting their their case to a judge?
1: Um, again. Uh, Uh, Try not to be um, combative, Um, try and assist the judge uh, as far as possible by um, listening to the judge's requests about how the case is to be conducted. Um, Feel free to ask the judge about any aspect of procedure that uh, you don't understand or you're not following. in dealing with the lawyer for your other party for the other party um, I would say try and do that in writing so that um, there is always a written document either an email um, or a letter so that there, there can't be any confusion about what's being said and I, I again I saw that time and time again um, uh, one an unrepresented party saying that the other party's lawyer had told them something, um, which was denied. So, you know, try and keep it in writing. Try and keep it the, the same sort of relationship you'd have with the bank manager if you're trying to borrow some money, for example. That courteous and businesslike. Mm.
0: Well, thanks for that. Is there any final, just I don't know, pet peeves when you're? Um, a judge, <laughs> things that we lawyers should be um, doing or not doing, words oh, of
1: wisdom. Not really, but um, I did want to talk a bit more about the unrepresented litigants. Oh, sure, and, yeah, talk, talk about um, it. What's happening in the rest of the world with Yeah, I'm interested in that, the, the global litigants. perspective. Um, and, well, it's my understanding that in the UK, for example, now there's virtually no legal aid available for family law matters. Irrespective of your means, that um, and this is a common thing that's happening throughout the world. That the legal aid budgets are being soaked up by criminal matters. Um, clearly, people that are charged with crimes that are going to deprive their liberty mm. um, need to be defended um, in priority to um, separating parties. So, more and more. Um, you see statistically being reported from different courts through, throughout the um, English-speaking world, for example, of increasing numbers of self-represented litigants. So I think that there needs to be developed um, some uh, additional way of assisting those parties deal with court processes. and. the the legal process is still a minefield for the average person who has no experience uh, with the law um, and perhaps has no experience really with the commercial world Um, most people I think just from watching television have an understanding what a courtroom looks like um, and most of them would see it as very much an adversarial place Mm. because that's what's really um, taken up by television and Mm. movies and so forth but so we need to change that perception that it's not an adversarial place um, that it's a place to do business and the business, although it might be a motive, the business is separating from a um, dysfunctional relationship or a relationship which you don't wish to continue anymore. Um, now, in America, um, the, the method of charging um solicitors uh, or lawyers charging clients is is different they can work on contingencies but contingencies aren't permitted in a lot of states aren't permitted um, in family law matters Mm. Um, but one of the things that's happened in america which i was really impressed with and which i was hoping to try and get established here is a concept which was called the justice cafe and the Justice Café was set up in Atlanta by um, a firm of lawyers who um, specialised in family law. They had some additional space because they expanded their firm. And so they established this Justice Café. It was called a café because there was a menu. And... Um, they provided a limited service, and it was for 10 hours of legal time, and you could choose how you wanted that spent, whether you want affidavits drafted, whether you want appearances before the court for an interlocutory matter or for a conference or something of that nature. It had a maximum fee of $75 per hour, So the, the client knew that the maximum that he could pay for services that were available was you know, $750. Um, they um, engaged lawyers um, to work in the Justice Cafe on a contract basis. Those lawyers that came in um, had to undertake to complete the 10 hours for a particular client so you're not having a change of lawyers sure. as lawyers come in and out um, and um, it 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 was remarkably successful and it's now expanded into di- different areas and it provides a um, an invaluable service i think um, for self-represented litigants to have somebody assist them prepare their documents for example is a big t- a big uh, leg in or leg up to um, running a piece of litigation um, because if you don't have any concept of how evidence is to be provided or you don't have any conce- concept of what might be important and what might not be mm. important for your proving your case then you don't really stand a chance and, and in, you've got to remember that in property cases or financial cases they are adversarial So there's a limit to the extent to which a judge can assist a self-represented litigant. Keeping a balanced play field uh, in a courtroom is is very difficult and um, you can't say in a property case to uh, a self-represented litigant, well, unless you produce documents to support your claim in a generalised form which you've made in your affidavit, I'm not going to be able to give weight to that claim. So, you know, um, there are limits to how far the judge can go. If you go too far, you'll be asked to disqualify yourself and that means that parties have to start again in front of another judge. Um, So I'd really like to see this concept of... um, The judicial, sorry, of the justice Justice cafe. Who
0: was running it? Was it a law
1: firm running it? Was it Was the law firm running it in Atlanta? Okay, interesting. Um, And I spoke to them. uh, I met them at uh, a conference in um, America, and I was really interested in it. And I um, spoke to them on the phone, and then I met with them personally to get all the documents about it and so did they
0: only do ten hours or can they do more or was it just seven no, like different things? Once
1: the ten hours were done, that's the end Let's of it. Okay. yeah, you you could engage them or another firm to proceed further. Um, and some did. Mm. Um, but th- it was interesting the clients that they had, you know, some of their clients were were earning dollars hundred and fifty, two hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, and really couldn't afford a full legal service.
0: Mm. I mean, that's just the thing. I mean, I know in Sydney some people think, oh, that sounds like quite a high income, but once you've paid, depending on where you live, once yes. you've paid your mortgage, your unusual in- expenses yes. and so forth, there's not always that much left, yes. even from a salary such as that. Do you know what I mean? From yes. legal fees.
1: The other area that they had a lot of, received a lot of clients for was the alimony oh. Um, applications, initial applications, so that parties separated. Mm. The husband controlled all the funds. Mm. The wife had no funds so she couldn't afford to engage a lawyer Mm. to um, act for her until she could get some funds. So the Justice Cafe represented those people in an application for alimony and for um, money to pay costs and Mm. once they got to that stage then they were funded and they could go to um, a commercial lawyer you know
0: No, that's really important Mm. work so you you're um putting it out there if anyone wants to start the equivalent of (laughs) the The justice Justice cafe Cafe,
1: i'd love to speak to them i'd love to help them because it's i think it's it would be a marvelous step forward in assisting uh, unrepresented litigants
0: and the the only thing is and i'm not trying to be a downer here but Mm. I mean, lawyers are probably concerned about their exposure here, you know, because if you just do 10 hours, you know, I've talked about this, you might not know the ins and outs of everything. You do potentially expose yourself.
1: uh, Absolutely, and that's why the reluctance, I think.
0: Mm. Um, What what were they doing at the Justice Cafe? How did they get around? They just were doing it?
1: They had a contract Mm. that you signed, um, and I can't remember exactly, but perhaps it acknowledged that that uh, this was a piecemeal Mm -hmm. operation, we're engaged to do a particular job for you um, and to give you advice about the overall um, uh, merits of your case would require something more than what you've engaged in. Mm. Yeah,
0: Mm. that's very interesting. Um, Any other perspectives from around the world? Or that was the main one you wanted to raise.
1: It was really about that no, is because I think it's a... Well, you can look at the statistics that are published in the annual reports for the Family Court of Australia and the Federal Circuit Court, and they have the details of the number of cases with self-represented litigants in them, um, either as one party or both parties. And the percentage of cases is increasing. Mm. And, of course, the number of cases is increasing in both courts hmm.
0: mm, so what how are we going to i guess as you say manage all this going forward things perhaps we need to think about more innovative ideas as you said such as this justice cafe yes. ways in which self-represented people can have some uh, assistance um yes. you know albeit it's only 10 hours but it, it could be have a big impact on them in terms of as you've said if their documents are properly prepared that, yes that, you know that's a good start
1: yes so. well people that aren't eligible for legal aid um, and can't afford really to engage a full-service lawyer um, fall into that area where they can't there's get any help. There's a lot of people help. that I
0: think fall into that area, that's yes. the thing, like there's a lot of people that wouldn't be eligible for legal aid but yet that their income w- would mean that they can't properly really pay for a solicitor either. No. So. It is a question about what we we do, you know, with those that that, that large segment going forward. Yes. And what they, what are they, what are they to do to navigate their way through family law process? Yes. Um, I guess any final last, as I said, last tips or. or uh, things that, that rubbed you the wrong way when you are a judge, things that things to do, things not to do? For, for lawyers, things you saw a lot of that you thought, oh, I wish people didn't do that, or things you saw well, that were done well?
1: Yes, there, there's one area I think that uh, lawyers really in family law really need to pay attention to, and that is the drafting of affidavits for parenting matters. Um, as you know, um, Division 12A of the Act under Part 7 um, says that particular parts of the Evidence Act don't apply to parenting cases um, unless um, ordered to apply by the judge. So that has been taken to mean that you can put whatever you like in an affidavit. But it's more important now than it ever was to draft those affidavits well. Because you don't get an opportunity to have objections taken. If somebody takes an objection to your affidavit based on form or the fact that what you're putting in there is conclusion, it's not fact, um, then you might be given an opportunity to remedy that by giving oral evidence of it. But that doesn't happen anymore. So you're stuck with that which appears in the affidavit. So it's really important to... Prepare your affidavits uh, with a view to the weight that the judge can put on the material that you include in that affidavit. Fact, not conclusion. Um, Support with documents where where it's important to uh, do so. That type of
0: thing. Mm. All right. So. Perhaps we need to brush up on our, <laughs> our drafting of affidavits a little yes, bit. Yes. Um, anything else, or the, the, main, the main? No, that was that the
1: big thing that really that stood out stood for out. me. Um, and uh, you just, I, I just saw it time and time again. Um, affidavits that um, almost looked like they'd been prepared by the clients rather than by the, the solicitors. Uh, or somebody trained legally with a view to, with, with an understanding of what evidence is and mm. um, what the court can take into account, and that which it will not take into account, or will only be able to give little or no weight to.
0: Mm. Well, look, thank you very much for today. Um, so if people want to track you down for a mediation or an arbitration, you're at Waratah Chambers? Yes, that's yes. right. Yes. So you can find um, uh, the Honourable Mark Laporte at Waratah Chambers. Um, and if you'd like to see more about what I'm up to and the Inside Family or book on my mediation work, um, you can have a look on my website at www.mediationanswers.com.au. Um, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mark. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Right, bye.